0: All right, let's get started. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 13. We'll be looking at uh, verses 11 through 18. So we'll finish the chapter tonight, Lord willing. So please give your attention as I read God's holy word. Revelation 13, starting in verse 11. John says and writes, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. The dreaded mark of the beast. You scared? <laughs> How many people ever watched the movie The Omen? I remember watching that movie. Uh, I don't know why my parents let me watch it, because it was in the 70s, but I had nightmares for weeks after watching The Omen as a kid. Oof. I'll, I'll watch Friday the 13th any day of the week because it's kind of stupid. But you know, you you give me these movies like The Omen or The Exorcist. Oh, those gave me the heebie-jeebies when I was a kid. So as we, oh, wow, there we go. As we continue our study of Revelation tonight, we're in what I think is the heart of the book of Revelation. These symbolic histories that we're going through. So again, we're in the third cycle. The first cycle was the seals. The second cycle were the trumpets, and now we're in the third cycle. These symbolic histories, and these symbolic histories really are the Holy Spirit's way of testifying to John how this period that we're in, this period of 42 months or 1,260 days, will fall out from a sort of a 30,000 foot view. So we're getting an overview of history from the beginning all the way to the end uh, in, in these symbolic histories here. It is a period in which the people of God, depicted by the woman and her offspring, are in an intense spiritual warfare with Satan, depicted as a ferocious dragon. And though Christ, who is the child here, has been victorious and has cast the dragon out of heaven to the earth, the dragon is still dangerous because he knows his time is short. He has been cast out from before God's presence. He is no longer able to accuse the brethren. He's now, as 1 Peter says, a roaring lion going about the earth seeking whom he may devour. And he is is, um, anxious. He is desperate because his time is short. So the dragon makes war with the offspring of the woman. He makes war with the church. If you remember last time when we looked at that, it's not that he's going to stop the church from being saved. It's not that he's going to stop the church from being victorious. He's just going to make our lives as miserable as possible on this earth until we go. Now, the dragon, to aid him in his task, he calls forth two hideous beasts, one from the sea, one from the earth. And we looked at this first beast last time in verses 1 through 10. And we noted this first beast, the beast from the sea, the similarity that he has to the dragon. The dragon is depicted in chapter 12 as having how many heads? Seven heads. How many horns? Ten horns. Ten horns. And then you look at the first beast in chapter 13. How many heads does he have? Seven heads. How many horns? Ten horns. So he has he's very similar to the dragon. We also noted his similarity to the beast that we saw in Daniel chapter 7 because not only does this beast from the earth have seven heads and ten horns, but he also has a mouth of a lion and he appears to be like a bear and a leopard. And we looked all the way back to Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel has this vision of these beasts that are coming out of the sea. He sees four beasts rising up out of the sea. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and we kind of, you know, lions and bears and leopards, oh my, right? But a lion, a bear, and a leopard, just like the beast in Revelation chapter 13, is, appears as a lion, a bear, and a leopard, all kind of combined. But then there was a fourth beast, a dreadful, hideous beast. And we're told in Daniel 7 that these beasts symbolically represent successive world empires which will torment God's people. But in another vision that Daniel has, in, or actually it's Nebuchadnezzar's vision, where he sees the statue, we also know that there is a stone that is uncut that appears and crushes these statues and conquers these kingdoms. So Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man, his kingdom, which will destroy all of the kingdoms of the earth and set up an eternal kingdom. But this beast here in Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, is an amalgam, is a combination of these beasts from chapter 7 of Daniel. It represents Rome in all of its horror, but it is also so much more than just the Roman Empire. I picked up a very good commentary on this uh, by William, Hen- William Hendrickson. He says, The first beast represents the persecuting power of Satan, Operating in and through the nations of this world and their governments. And that was what we looked at. That's what we concluded last time. That the first beast is the world governments under the control and authority of Satan, uh, opposing God's people, persecuting God's people, and making life miserable for God's people. And again, this idea that he is the combination of all the world governments through this period. It's obvious when we look and notice that this beast has seven heads. Not that you know, you know, seven heads rule better than one. It's seven heads to show that it's many kings, many kingdoms, many rulers, multiple crowns. And even though one of the heads appears as dead, it is revived. The beast makes war with the saints and is allowed to overcome them. And then he or it also demands worship from those who dwell on the earth. And those who dwell on the earth, again, that's sort of technical language in Revelation that denotes unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth. So as we come into tonight's passage, we're going to see here Satan's other partner in crime. This beast from the earth. Still beastly from its description, this beast performs a very different task than the first beast and we'll look at his identity in a moment but what we have here with this second beast here with the dragon and the two beasts is what a lot of commentators refer to as an unholy trinity you've got the dragon the first beast and the second beast they kind of form an unholy trinity so whereas we have in the real trinity the father the son and the holy spirit here we have the dragon the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth And in many ways, this unholy trinity seeks to mock and seeks to copy and mimic uh, the holy trinity. And it goes to show that Satan isn't infinitely creative like God is. Satan sort of copies God, but he doesn't copy God nearly as good as God can do God, right? Satan always tries to copy God, but always falls short. He doesn't have that many, he doesn't seem to have that many bullets in his gun either. He continues to use the same tricks and tactics over and over again. And it goes to show that if you want to fool most people, you give them a forgery of something that is real, right? That's what they tell, they teach the treasury officers in the United States Treasury how to spot counterfeits. You don't teach them how to, you don't, they don't study all the counterfeits. What they do is they study the real deal. So then when you see a counterfeit, you'll know that it's not the real deal because you know what the real deal looks like. Here, what the opposite to that is if you want to tell a good convincing lie, make it as close to the truth as possible. So the unholy trinity makes their own, you know, their own uh, activity mimic the activity of God and the actual holy trinity. But we're also here heading into a portion of the book of Revelation that is probably one of the most difficult to understand. That's why in verse 9, which we didn't read, but verse 9 <coughs> says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Okay? It doesn't mean that if you actually have ears, you will hear. It means pay attention. If you can understand, understand it. If you can hear it, hear it. And then in verse 18 we see here, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate. So this passage calls us to hear. And it calls us to have wisdom. It calls us to be discerning. And it calls us to be wise. And if we remember our interpretive rule throughout Revelation, we should be able to navigate through this passage. And those rules are that the Old Testament is key to understanding the book of Revelation. And second, our interpretation must make sense to John's original audience. If it doesn't make sense to John's original audience, or if it wouldn't have made sense to John's original audience, it is more than likely a wrong or incorrect interpretation. So like last time, we'll divide this passage here into four parts. So I didn't actually change too much of it, right? You've got the identity of the beast again, the activity of the beast, the power of the beast, and the mark of the beast. Well, first, let us look at the identity of the beast in verse 11. So, after seeing this monstrous beast rising up out of the sea, John now sees another beast, this time coming up out of the earth in verse 11. Where he says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, <clears throat> and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So like the first beast, John sees another beast, a second beast. And unlike the first beast, this beast has two horns, not seven or ten. He has two horns like a lamb, yet he spoke like a dragon. Now, okay, lamb and dragon. If you've got the imagery here of a lamb, a lamb, this should call to mind two things. Okay, what do you think it calls to mind when you see that this beast resembles a lamb? Jesus. Right, what else is a lamb? Just in general, what, what kind of animal is a lamb? <laughs> yes, stupid. Docile, exactly. What's, a, what's another word for docile? Gentle, peaceful, right. So you have the, the phrase, and we're going to look at it, right? A lamb in sheep's clothing, right? This is what this, so he appears as a lamb. A lamb is docile, peaceful. The first beast resembled a lion, a bear, and a leopard. These are all vicious predators. Here, a lamb is harmless and timid, and yes, indeed, a lamb is also stupid. But again, like we said, a lamb should also call to mind the image of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who we see earlier in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, appears as a lamb that had been slain. So in some ways, in some ways, this beast resembles Christ. But unlike Christ, this beast spoke like a dragon. What does that tell you? Jesus, it's, well, it's not Jesus, right. The devil in sheep's clothing. What's that? The devil, in sheep's clothing. the devil in sheep's clothing, right. So although it looks like a lamb, it speaks like a dragon. Now the dragon is Satan. So, this second beast resembles Satan in his speech. In other words, he lies, he spreads falsehoods. That's what this lamb does. So, he's like Jesus in a way, but he speaks lies, he speaks falsehoods, he speaks untruths. And again, this is what Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew. You could flip over to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks here near the end of this sermon about false and true teaching. And in Matthew 7, verse 15, he warns his disciples here and says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So he tells them, beware of false prophets. These people come to you looking like lambs, looking like sheep, but they're false prophets. They're, in, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They are ravenous wolves. And how will you know what they look like? Or how will you know that they are the ravenous wolves? Not by what they say, but by what they do. By their fruits you will know them, because they speak Subtle lies. That's how you know. So you can you can be fooled by their lies, but you will know them because just like a bad tree bears bad fruit, a false prophet will bear bad fruit. Now you can flip over to Matthew twenty-four. This is Jesus' own testimony about his own return. We looked at this in some detail uh, months ago when we looked at the seals. But in Matthew 24, verse 24, again, Jesus warning about the signs of the times. What are the signs of his coming? What what will happen near the end of the age when Jesus, right before he returns in glory? And he says, starting in verse 23, I'll just back up a little bit. He says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. 24, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Again, the end times, as we get closer to, I mean, we're all in the end times right now, but as we get closer and closer To the return of Christ, more of these false Christs, these false prophets will rise and will give false signs and wonders to deceive, as Jesus says, if possible, even the elect. So, this second beast from the earth is then commonly referred to, and you can flip back to Revelation 13, he is commonly referred to as the false prophet. The lamb who speaks like a dragon. The wolf in sheep's clothing. He is the false prophet. And that's how, what he's referred to in other places in Revelation. You don't need to turn to them, but you can jot these down if you'd like. Revelation sixteen thirteen, John says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. One Revelation 19, verse 20. Revelation 19, verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And then again in chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this second beast is the false prophet. So if this vision that John sees of the beast from the earth is the false prophet, how is this beast then to be interpreted? I mean, it's, it's one thing he says, okay, he's the false prophet, but how does that help you? Right? You know, what does that mean? How do we interpret the false prophet? Well, if the first beast is political, if he is a political antichrist, then the second beast is a prophetic religious antichrist. For John's first century uh, audience, if the first beast is Rome, then the second beast would be the imperial priesthood that demanded emperor worship. But if you remember from the letters to the churches in Revelation, one of them was where Satan's throne was. I believe that was the church, Sardis, is where Satan's throne was. It might be Pergamus, One of those two. Anyway, it was in a place where Satan, you know, in other words, his, it was a place that was very steeped in emperor worship. So you had the cult of emperor, the imperial priesthood that would demand emperor worship of the subjects. They didn't care what religion you practice, as long as you bowed to the emperor. Again, Hendrickson writes, the second beast symbolizes false religion, false philosophy, in whichever form these appear throughout the entire age or dispensation. He uses the word dispensation. He's an older writer. Doesn't have as much baggage as we understand it now. Uh, Richard Phillips, who also writes in this, says, if the sea beast stands for vicious tyranny, the land beast is the propagandist who encourages people to worship him. And I saw some commentators actually referring to the second beast as sort of like Hitler's ministry of propaganda. So you had the first beast would be Hitler. The second beast would be the ministry of propaganda that propped him up, that sort of sold him, that sort of made him appealing to the people. A third commentator says the second beast then claims to speak for God and thus represents religious authority contrary to God's word and ways. So this second beast is false religion. The second beast is false philosophy. This second beast is all those things that sort of work hand in hand with the first beast, with the political tyranny, with the political oversight. So, The second beast is symbolic of false religion and false philosophy. So what is this beast doing as we look now to the activity of the beast in verses 12-14? through Well, in these verses we see this beast doing three things. This beast does three things. First in verse 12. So this second beast, false religion, false philosophy, propaganda for the first beast. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the first thing we see is that this second beast, this false prophet, exercises all of the authority of the first beast. So he has the same power that the first beast has, power that was given to it by the dragon so to the second beast is likewise empowered but more importantly the second beast entices and encourages the earth and those who dwell in it to then worship the second or the first beast the second beast points people to the first beast the second beast wants people to worship the first beast so false religion wants people to worship the state And here we see the second beast mimicking what the Holy Spirit does in His activity. What does the Holy Spirit primarily do in the lives of believers? What's that? I heard Jesus. (laughs) It points people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit applies the work and person of Jesus into the hearts of believers. The Holy Spirit does not draw attention to Himself. He draws attention to Jesus. Jesus which is exactly what this second beast is doing, except in an unholy way. So just as the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the saints and directs them to worship the risen Savior, this second beast performs the same task for the benefit of the first beast. Again, I mentioned, just like Hitler's ministry of propaganda or similar ministries in Stalin's Russia or Mao's China, The second beast is the propaganda arm of the first beast. Now last time we learned that the first beast had a mortal wound which had been healed. And this then caused all the world to marvel at the first beast. And this too then is used by the second beast to motivate the world to worship the first beast. And in addition to that, secondly... The second beast in verse 13 we see performs great signs. Verse 13. He, the second beast, performs great signs so that even so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So wait, you're telling me that this false prophet can actually perform real signs? I thought only God's prophets can perform real signs. Well, apparently. Now, it's not certain if these are actually tricks, like parlor tricks or illusions, you know, like David Copperfield making a giant you know, elephant disappear or something like that, or if these are actual demonically empowered feats. But again, recall what Jesus said. <clears throat> wow. Recall what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 24. False Christs, false prophets will rise and show what? Great signs and wonders. Remember what Pharaoh's magicians were able to do in the court of Pharaoh whenever Moses would appear and Moses would toss the staff down and turn it into a snake. Well, Moses didn't do it, God did it. But Moses was the one who tossed the staff down and then it turned into a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians came up. You know, Pharaoh's like, Can you do that? And they're like, Yeah, of course we can do that. And they kind of do the same trick. So then Pharaoh's like, I don't believe in your trick, Moses. You're just fooling me. And the same thing when the river turned to blood, the Pharaoh's magicians were able to turn some water into blood. So Pharaoh's like, nah, okay, I'm not going to go for it. And then finally, at some point, Pharaoh's magicians were like, can't do that one. You know, ran, we ran out of our bag of tricks. So whatever Pharaoh's magicians were doing to perform these signs and wonders, the false prophet can perform these signs and wonders. We even see here a reference to calling down fire from heaven. Who did that in the Bible? What's that? The prophets of Baal did not call fire down from heaven. From heaven. Okay. Who who called fire down from heaven? You're you're in the right. You're in the ballpark. No. Who do, who fought the prophets of Baal? Elijah, Elijah right? <laughs> Elijah called fire down from heaven to destroy the, the uh, or to consume the offering, and then he went off and killed the prophets of Baal afterwards. That's my kind of guy. Um, but well, that's, a, he, that's a righteous act right to destroy false prophets <clears throat> but here we see this false prophet copies a sign of even Elijah calling fire down from heaven again whether real or merely parlor tricks the point of these signs and wonders isn't to glorify God that's the point but to get the world to worship the first beast Jesus performed all of his miracles. The prophets performed all of their miracles not to get a following for themselves, but to bring glory to God, to accomplish the work of God, right? They, they were not just parlor tricks. In fact, when you know, people who were unbelieving came up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, show us a trick, he'd say, no, I'm not going to show you a trick because my miracles are not tricks. I'm not here to entertain your kids and make little balloon animals for them. I'm here to further the kingdom of God. My miracles perform and further that goal. They are showing you how the kingdom of God is breaking forth into this world, how the kingdom of God is coming with power to reverse the curse. So this idea of raising people from the dead, curing sicknesses and curing blindness and all these things is to show how the power of God reverses the curse, how the kingdom of God is removing everything that is been broken from the curse. So the first beast does three things. The first one is he uh, causes people to worship the first beast. second thing is he performs great signs and miracles. Finally, in verse 14, he deceives. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So through these signs and wonders, the second beast is able to deceive those who dwell on the earth again, unbelievers. Revelation says those who dwell on the earth, it's always referring to unbelievers. And so deceived are the unbelievers that they then make an image to the first beast. Now, are we to understand this? This is an actual literal idol or image that was erected? Probably not. Because remember, this is symbolic language. The point being, the goal is, of the deception is false worship of the first beast. Images in the Bible almost always are associated with false worship. What is the first instance that you can think of in the Bible of false worship Think in the book of Exodus. Moses and the Israelites going on their way at Sinai. Golden the golden calf, right. I always liked Aaron, not you, Aaron, but Aaron, Moses' brother's uh, explanation. When Moses comes down, he says, What is this golden calf I see here? And Aaron's like, look, the people, you know, they gave me all the gold I threw into the fire and You know, up came this golden calf. It's like, I had nothing to do with it. It's like, come on, Aaron. Come on, Aaron. You know better than that. We also see Nebuchadnezzar's statue in Daniel 3. And that's one in which the state, Nebuchadnezzar, um, commanded that people would worship this statue. And what do Daniel's three friends do? They take a hard pass on that one, right? And they say, go ahead and kill us. We're not going to worship your statue And we always have to keep Paul's words in mind in 1 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to turn there because I didn't write the actual reference down in my notes here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. This is at the end of the section in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about sacrificing food to idols and Christian liberty. But then at the end of that discussion, he says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? He says, rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So even though the idols themselves are nothing, Paul is saying behind that idol is a demon and when you bow to you know, worship Baal or some other false god, you're not worshiping the false god. You're worshiping demonic hosts and activity. So that is the activity of the beast. The identity of the beast is false religion. The activity of the beast is to bring worship to the first beast and to deceive the world and to um, <coughs> perform great signs and miracles. Thirdly, let us look now at the power of the beast in verses 15 through 17. And the first thing we see here regarding the power of the beast is that it is granted to this beast to give breath to the image of the beast. Verse 15, where we read here, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And again, here we see the, the second beast mimicking the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Because it is the Holy Spirit who in a sense is the breath of God. In fact, the word spirit, whether you translate it out of Hebrew or Greek or Latin, all means the same thing. It is, means breath or wind. And during the ministry of Jesus, he gave the perfect example of a life yielded to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, here the satanic copy of that as the second beast seems to empower the image of the first beast to speak. And moreover, power was granted to the second beast to cause to be killed any who would not bow to the image. So the second beast appears to make this, the image speak and anyone who does not worship that image, then the second beast is allowed to kill. He is given power to kill. Now, again, how are we to understand this? Again, because this is symbolic language, this is apocalyptic imagery. How do we interpret this in such a way as to make sense of it? Well, if you are a dispensationalist, you're apt to interpret this literally. And I put literal in quotes because you have then a literal false prophet in the future who somehow gives life to a literal idol of a literal future antichrist and so on. That's If you're a dispensationalist, that's how you would understand this, or at least most would. Now this would have zero traction with John's original audience, because why would they care about something that happens so far in the future that has no bearing in their own lives? Why would John tell them that this needs wisdom and discernment if it's something that is going to happen long after they're dead, long after their children are dead, long after their great-grandchildren are dead, their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are dead? Why would they care? No. It's best to see this as we saw the first beast describing realities through this church age that we are in. So this second beast is symbolic of false prophets and false religion in all ages. So now we have the two beasts here, the anti-Christian government and anti-Christian religion working in perfect cooperation with one another. Hendrickson goes on to say later, throughout this entire dispensation, false prophets, by showing great signs and wonders, shall try to deceive the masses and to strengthen the hand of government when it bears down upon the church. And moreover, this false prophet, this work of the false prophet is done through force and coercion and persecution. So failure to worship the anti-Christian government results in death. Now the power of the second beast is also seen through what we have here, the so-called mark of the beast in verses 16 and 17. So the second beast causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of His name. So just as the Gospel is for all, rich or poor, right? uh, Rich or poor, free or slave, small and great, so too here the second beast causes all, rich and poor, small and great, free and slave, to receive this mark. And they receive this mark on their right hands, or they receive this mark on their foreheads. And yet again, we see here Satan's copycat work. Because what happened to the saints in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3? What do we see when we see the the saints in Revelation chapter 7? What happens to them? They receive what on their foreheads? A seal, right? God's people are marked out in Revelation chapter 7. They receive the seal on the foreheads. And here we see Satan copying that. We see him. Marking those who are His. Now, this idea of the mark of the beast, we have here one of those passages in Revelation that has generated so much speculation. I mean so much speculation. How much speculation? So much speculation. Is it a visible mark? Is it microchips injected into your body through the COVID vaccine? Is that the mark of the beast? Come on now. Is it some ID card? Is it some barcode that you put on your arm? What is this mark of the beast? Is the mark some kind of government seal of approval given only to those who go along with its religious demands? Clearly here, the mark of the beast is a source of economic persecution, right? Because we're told, The one who does not have the mark is not allowed to buy or sell. But more than that, the mark of the beast is a mark of ownership. Just like the seal of God on the saints of God is Him marking out His people, protecting His people. These are my people. The mark of the beast is saying, these are my people. These are my slaves. I have marked them. It is a mark of ownership. The beast's mark is a symbol of the beast's ownership and control of his followers' thoughts, marks on the forehead, or his followers' deeds, marks on the hand. Basically, the mark says give your allegiance to the first beast, or else you will not be able to engage in society. And here we see that the two beasts then conspire to exclude believers from the marketplace. It is a mark of slavery to the state and to false religion. The mark of the beast is the God opposing, Christ rejecting, church persecuting spirit of Antichrist wherever and whenever it shows itself. The mark of the beast. Well, finally now, we are cruising here. It's not even 8 o'clock yet. Finally now, verse 18, the number of the beast. So verse 17 ends with, um, except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, other translations seem to suggest that the mark is, some, um, is the same as the name or the number of the beast. And as with interpretations of the mark, the interpretations of what the number of the beast means has ranged from speculation to outright insanity. Okay, so just as the mark of the beast has been variously interpreted, the number of the beast has been variously in- interpreted. That's why John says in verse 18, Here is wisdom. The one with understanding should calculate the number of the beast. And we're told that the number is 666. So it's like you're on Jeopardy, right? Jeopardy gives you the answers and you have to guess the question. So they say, okay, the answer is 666. And the question is, now you have to guess the question, right? Well, so this number... Now, in ancient languages like Hebrew and Greek, they didn't use numbers like we have numbers, okay? In our, in our alphabet, we have letters A through Z, and we have Arabic numerals 0 through 9. So we can make numbers just by using the numerals. In languages like Hebrew, they did not have numerals, so what they would do is they would assign numeric values to their letters. So then their letters then would represent numbers. Same thing with the Greek letters, and we see that even in Roman letters, right? How do you do Roman numerals? You use I, X, V, L, C. Those are letters in the Latin alphabet. So there's an apocalyptic technique called gemetria or gemetria in which code was used to conceal secrets in numbers. So names would be encoded so that a name would have a numeric value and then you can sort of hide secrets that way. So here we see the call to calculate the number of the beast using geometria to decipher a name from 666. So in other words, we're like, okay, give me the name, the number here, 666. Now let me work backwards and try to give you a name. Now, I read through numerous commentaries and I came up, there were so many variations on who the number of the beast is. I mean, so many new... Variations. I am not going to go through all the various theories on this. One popular answer is that 666 corresponds to Nero Caesar, because when you convert the letters of Nero Caesar into Hebrew and then calculate the numbers, therefore you get the number 666. Now, what's wrong with that theory? Well, first, John's readers and John himself wrote in Greek. So you would expect them now to take the name in Greek, transliterate it into Hebrew, and then calculate the number from that. Most of these, even though they may have been Jewish, may not have known Hebrew. They were probably Greek-speaking Jews. So why would we do that? So it requires you to convert to Hebrew letters, something John's Greek readers probably wouldn't be expected to do. Not to mention that this approach of geometria to kind of... Calculate names that total up to 666 has led to Adolf Hitler being identified as the Beast. Ronald Wilson Reagan, because he's got 666 in his name, he's been identified as the Beast. And then I kid you not, one commentator said, Barney the Purple Dinosaur. (laughs) If you did it right, it could come out to 666, So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm just going to say right off the bat, any theory that says that the beast can be Nero, Hitler, Reagan, or Barney the Purple Dragon or Dinosaur, I think we should avoid, right? What do you think? You think we should avoid those? I think we should avoid those too. It's like a wax nose. You can make it be whatever you want it to be. So what is then the number of the beast? And I think we have a hint to that when John says it is the number of a man. Some other translations say it is the number of man without an uh, uh, article there. Greek doesn't use indefinite articles, so you can, you can say the number of a man or the number of man. Now we know in the Bible and in the book of Revelation the number seven is what? Complete Perfection, right? Completeness, wholeness. If that's the case, then what is six? Not quite there. there. It is one short. Just short of perfect. Just short of complete. Just short of whole. And if you're not perfect, complete, or whole, then you are imperfect. You are incomplete and you are lacking. What else is imperfect and incomplete and lacking? What's that? All of us, exactly. Fallen men and angels. We are imperfect, we are incomplete, and we are lacking. Six always fails to attain to perfection. It never becomes seven. Six means missing the mark. It means failure. Seven means perfection or victory. John does not intend, John the author here does not intend to point to any particular individual here. Rather, he's saying that the kingdom of the beast is a human kingdom. It is an evil kingdom instead of a divine kingdom. And Satan, from the beginning, has been aiming for God and his kingdom and has been forever falling short. Right? What was Satan's first sin? You kind of see that in Isaiah 14 where he says, I will ascend. I will attain. I will climb the mountain. And I will be and I will take God off his throne. And what does God say? No. <laughs> I'm going to kick you out. That's what he says. Satan has always been trying, aiming for God. What does he tell Adam and Eve in the garden? He says, God did not say you will die he doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows you're going to be like him. Right? He twists the truth and then just outright lies. He first tells a half-truth and then he comes at you with the full lie and says, you will be like God. God is keeping something from you. You need to eat this fruit so you can be like him. And then they eat it and they realize you sold us a bill of goods, Satan. <laughs> We're nothing like God right now. Try as he may to mimic God, the kingdom of God, the Messiah of God, the worship of God. It is all destined to fall short and be destroyed because the number of the beast is the number of a man. It is one short of seven. It will forever fall short of seven. So here we have, at the end, we have this second beast that has been introduced. The second beast is another one of Satan's minions who helps The first beast who brings worship to the first beast, who draws people to worship the first beast, who uses deception and lies. He comes as a wolf in sheep's clothing. All these things. All of this to sort of, again, remember what's going on in these symbolic histories is that the people of God are being persecuted. Right? If you do not worship the first beast, you will not receive the mark of the beast. If you do not receive the mark of the beast, guess what? You don't get to perform in society you don't get to trade or whatever you you get locked out of society. So then you have all of this is done to put pressure on the people of God, to persecute the people of God. Now we're going to see in the next passage in 2 weeks lord willing how the lamb here is with the 144,000 those are the, that's the church and we're going to look at that next time uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. But here, this is Satan and his two buddies, right? Evil world governments and false religion. And all of these here not only mimic the true deal, the real deal, but they also seek to persecute the believers, to persecute the church, and to get them to deny God and to deny Jesus Christ.